0: Hi, it's Lou. I just wanted to let you know what's new and what's still around for Square Pegs in 2022. The Patreon membership is still up and running. The address for that is patreon.com forward slash square peg And don't forget that W for the word hole. I really appreciate any contribution that anyone can provide to help me to keep this podcast going and to pay for some of the ongoing costs associated with it. It's very, very much appreciated. So, Thank you so much to my Patreon members as always. Something I did develop at the end of last year was a new website. On that website there are podcast episodes, transcripts, there's a huge resource library, there's news and information on advocacy projects. The address for the website is squarepegroundhole.com.au Speaking of advocacy projects, I wanted to let you know that I've been successful since starting the podcast in actually getting a seat at the table with the Federal Education Department. That is the Minister's office and the task force that advise the Minister. So I will keep everyone posted on that work and thank you to everyone who is contributing to that. Many people know I have two Facebook groups or pages. There's a public page and there's a closed group. Please feel free to apply to join the closed group. It's where we discuss a lot of the episodes and some of the advocacy work that we're working on. And I just finally wanted to say it is my only ambition to speak on behalf of parents when I speak. I will never speak on behalf of any group to which I cannot represent with lived experience. I don't speak on behalf of neurodivergent people. However, I am very happy to bring neurodivergent people along to discussions and to share with us all. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you find it helpful. Thank you. Quick shout out to Michelle and Nicole for becoming my latest Patreon members. I want to thank each and every one of you guys out there. Um, It really, really does help me to keep this podcast going. There are quite a few costs involved and um, it's a lot of my time, believe me. So I appreciate your support. Um, I hope you're finding it helpful. And any one of you, please feel free to contact me at any time and I will see what I can do to help you. Okay, thanks guys. I would like to acknowledge that this podcast meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to elders, both past, present and future, and to welcome you to this new episode for podcast Square Peg Round Hole. Welcome to Square Peg Roundhole, the podcast where we discuss diversity and how to embrace our neurodivergent kids at home, at school and in the workplace. Today we are talking to Paul Dillon from Drug and Alcohol Research and Training. The first thing I must say is that Paul is not and does not claim to be an expert on neurodivergence or neurodiversity, so we need to place our own lens over everything that is discussed today. It's pretty obvious to anyone who knows an ADHD teenager that the discussion today becomes amplified in terms of impulsive and hyperactive tendencies, but there is also the neurochemical aspect to it, and that is what we're going to try and focus on, without making sweeping statements or claims of expertise in neuroscience. No matter who you are, we all need to enter the world of drugs and alcohol with our eyes wide open. And that is especially true when it comes to our neurodivergent youth. There's ADHD-related risks, neurochemical and mental health factors to consider. These challenges are difficult enough without the crippling effects of a drug dependence or abuse of any substance. Drug and Alcohol Research and Training Australia, or DATA aims to provide education and training expertise as well as high quality research assistance on a wide range of alcohol and other drug issues. DATA specialises in providing education and training to a wide range of audiences and can tailor presentations to suit any agency's requirements in the area of alcohol and other drugs. Each year, DATA present education sessions to hundreds of school communities right across Australia delivering information to students, teachers and parents. In addition, DATA has also been asked to present to a wide variety of community groups and organisations at conferences, seminars and workshops, both nationally and internationally. Paul Dillon is the Director and Founder of DATA and he is passionate about ensuring that the community has access to accurate and up-to-date alcohol and other drug information. So why do teens vape, get drunk to the point of unconsciousness, smoke weed and snort cocaine? Let's ask Paul all about it. Welcome to the podcast, Paul Dillon.
1: Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can one. say
0: hi. <laughs> <Come on>. Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I thought you were going to do a longer introduction and I was just going to come on. But, uh, thank you very much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I'm going to leave that in because that was funny. Um, (laughs) Paul, thank you so much for being here today. Um, What I was going to say was that, um, just sort of mention how I heard about your podcast. Um, Actually, Maggie Dent, who's been on this podcast as well, mentioned your podcast. Um, And I thought, oh, I've heard of Paul Dillon before. Um, And I listened and I thought, wow, please, I hope he will come on my little podcast um, to talk about drugs, alcohol, all of these issues that affect our young teens. Um, I mean, it's hard enough as it is with neurotypical teens and dealing with these, these issues that appear once they hit the teenage years. But when you've got children who are impulsive, they have associated mental illnesses to deal with, potentially taking other medications that do treat some of these conditions um, it's another whole can of worms so we're going to talk about that today and I'm really excited thank you so much for being here.
1: As I said an absolute pleasure.
0: (laughs) Thank you so let's start with our icebreaker questions for a bit of fun to get going Um, Paul can you tell me what is your favorite animal and why do you choose this animal?
1: (laughs) I'm so glad you sent these through to me earlier. I'm, I'm not sure if that's a secret, but you. As you did <laughs> said, I had to, th- have to think through these. I, look, I'd have to say my favourite animal would most probably be a panda, and the only reason I would say that is that um, whenever I travel the world, whatever zoo I'm, wherever I'm at, if they have pandas there. Um, I always try to make an effort to go and see the pandas. Um Aww,
0: and, they're uh, so cute. I'm not a very
1: big zoo person but the best per- the best thing about pandas are that they're usually looked after pretty well and they have a pretty nice you know, place to be.
0: I mean, I, I've come up with a lot of these questions with the, the lens of my little boy, um, or he's not so little anymore, he's 14, um, over things and he loves animals. So, you know, I just thought this might be interesting this year to talk about what people like. Um, and so my next question for you is a little bit more sort of deep and serious. If there was one thing you could change in the world, what would it be and why?
1: It's interesting, I'm just actually doing my next series of podcasts for both young people and I'm just doing a couple, um, about five or six for parents and the one thing that really popped up as I was doing my podcast for young people was about bullying. Um, I was terribly bullied when I was at school. It was a, um, a pretty awful, my first three years of high school were just terrible and mm. if I could change anything, it would be about eliminating bullying because I think um it is uh, I think it's just a natural part of who we are I mean it happens but the devastation the um, the impact it has on um, a person's life at the time but you know ever after is there so if you could remove if I could remove one thing I think it would be that.
0: I think that is a fantastic answer and it You may not realise, but that's so, so um, relevant for our community, as you probably imagine. Mm -hmm. Bullying comes up all the time and long-lasting effects, as you say. Absolutely. Please, Paul, can you tell us about a little bit more about your life growing up and how you found yourself doing what you are doing today? And can you try and link that to any connection that you have around the concept of the square peg trying to fit into the round hole?
1: From a very early age, I wanted to be a teacher. Um, uh, so um, if you look at the evidence about why people become teachers, it's used because of a teacher they had themselves. Um, and I, I have a teacher that I can remember. Her name was Mrs Cooper. Um, in my mind, and I'm sure this wasn't true, but she looks like Mary Poppins. And um, she kind of changed my life because from her, and um, I most probably was about eight when um, she she taught me. Um, that's all I wanted to do. I went through mm-hmm. high school. As I said, it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience. Um, and um, I finally became a teacher after a lot of kind of um, um, misfires over a long period of time. I taught for 10 years in WA. I always promised I'd leave teaching when I wasn't enjoying it. I can remember going into a staff room very early in my career and basically having a whole pile of people sitting there going, I hate these kids. These kids are terrible. And I thought, I don't want to do that. I certainly don't want to start, you know, bitching about kids. And so I got out and I did some other things, kind of veered back in. And it was by pure accident that I fell into drug and alcohol. I was um, working at a research centre at the University of New South Wales. People were asking for researchers to come in and speak to kids. No researcher wanted to do it. And they said, look, you used to be a teacher. Why don't you you do it? And because I was working at a research centre, my boss said, look, the only way you're going to do it is if you do it following best practice. So I had to read all the research on what best practice was. Then I went in and um, started doing it. I'm still doing it today. My father says I'm, uh, you know, I was always kind of, destined to be i suppose an educator i am so fortunate i love what i do um i really do i can i feel very sorry for people who wake up in the morning and don't want to go to work i mean i'm I, I do love what i do and i think to to be successful at anything i think you've got to be quite passionate about it i suppose my kind of linking with a uh, square peg round hole would be that first off for my own my own kind of sense of self I certainly didn't feel, because I was bullied when I was younger, to be, I felt I felt very different. I, I, I couldn't understand what that difference was. One of my greatest joys when I go into a school is standing in front of a group of young people and I see myself. I see these little key groups of kids who don't fit in. Often they're in a little group, three or four of them, and you look at them and you go, they don't fit in with any other group. You can see that they don't, and they tend to quite enjoy my talks. But what I always will do, if I can see, particularly if there's one who looks like it's real, like they're really you know, being bat- batted over their head a bit, I will go up and I'll introduce myself. <laughs> In the old days, I used to shake their hand. I don't know what I'm going to do from now on, but, you know, and I'd say, oh, my name's Paul. What's your name? And shake their hand. Then I'd ask them a question, and um, they'd answer, And then I'd race away and after every talk, I write quite extensive notes on what happened and I write their name and what they told me. And then my job for the following year, when I see them in the following year, is to find them again and I'll find them again. And then I go up and I say, your name's Larry, isn't it? Didn't you tell me about your mum last year? And they're little, truly, they almost explode. They get so, so um, excited that someone actually remembered them. And I think if we can make any young people, well, anybody feel special just for a moment in a day, then we've done our job. Um, Well, we've done something pretty amazing. Certainly young people really appreciate that. I, I, I tell teachers, you know, if you look at the research around one of the most powerful things a teacher can do in a day is actually remember a kid's name, to actually address them by their first name means they're validated in some way and so I think that's a, a really powerful tool that we all have that unfortunately we don't always use.
0: It amazes me how often people who come onto this podcast say very similar but unique stories like that you know that's why you're here that's why I'm here because we have experienced some of these square peg round hole related issues and it's, it's very common you know, makes you realise, well, why are we feeling so marginalised, you know, in the first place? We've got to start to embrace difference and diversity. Oh,
1: schools can be the cruelest places. There are still some schools that, that I I walk into, but their hair stand on my end, hair stand on my arm stand on end, and I just feel so uncomfortable because I can just, it takes me way back, just in the way that everything is handled. That, i got to say, that's less and less and less schools that I've, over the years that I've been doing this, but what is so amazing today is that I can go into a school and sometimes you just feel the the acceptance and warmth. And there's a couple of schools that have got wonderful kind of um, what we call them mottos and uh, celebrate difference, um, celebrate difference, and, um, and and embrace diversity and things like that. And I'm going to more and more schools where it's not about academics it's not about sport it's about making sure that a kid comes out the other end as as safe and supported and protected as possible that's what it should be about and i think now most schools have got that i think they realize that yeah it's great for them to get the best marks possible and everything else and but if you haven't got a happy kid i yeah. mean what's the
0: point yeah what is the point um, yeah we've yeah. got we've <laughs> got to get past haircuts <laughs> above the shoulders and all that um okay um let's keep going my next question for you paul is you mention on your own podcast and i heard you say this that you've never consumed alcohol not many people can say that unless there's a reason like you know religion or something like that so how does your own clean living impact on the work that you do <laughs> Do do you think there's a particular way we as parents should model our behaviour? And I know you have opinions on this in relation to drugs and alcohol in front of our teens.
1: Yeah, when I I, I need to clarify the never consumed alcohol because I, I did okay. it, in the <laughs> podcast I did say I never consumed alcohol in my teens ever. I can yep. remember the very first time I tried alcohol, and that was well, I, well, I don't, wouldn't even know when it was. It was sometime in my maybe mid-20s, I think. But yeah. I did certainly nothing until possibly my mid-40s when I started socialising a little bit more and there was just a pressure to actually involve. But I yeah. I did it for mm-hmm. a very short period of time and I never got, I don't think I ever got drunk. So yeah, I mean. um, drinking was not a part of my family's life. I never really, well, we never had alcohol in the house I can't remember ever seeing alcohol in the house. Um, So um, for me, I've also been extremely lucky that I don't like the taste. And Mm. so it's been very easy for me to say, no, I, I don't enjoy it. I've got to say that pressure, as I said, became much greater when I was older. What not drinking has done and it's made my job when I go into a school and speak to students really easy to stand at the front and say look I'm a non-drinker I didn't drink when I was a teenager I don't drink today and a number of kids who come up I have to say particularly young men who come up and they go you know what I've never ever heard a grown man say he doesn't drink and didn't drink during it during his teens you know we all know people who don't drink I mean I know quite a growing numbers of people are choosing not to drink, but I just don't think we ever talk about it. And as I always say to parents, if you've got anybody in your life who doesn't drink alcohol, wheel them out occasionally and go, look at this strange person. You know, your kid needs to know that there's, there's, there's options when it comes to drinking. We always talk about re, basically, you know, risky drinking and responsible drinking. There's a third option, don't drink at all. And there's nothing wrong with that option. It's certainly not something I push. I'm not, it would be, I would be a failure if I stood in front of a group of year 10s, year 11s or year 12s and said to them, don't drink alcohol. If I did that, I would lose them very quickly.
0: Well, that's like the Ronald Reagan, remember the Ronald Reagan slogan, just say no. Yeah, it didn't work.
1: (laughs) And We know it doesn't work. Now, Hmm. sometimes people get a little bit upset and they go, well, are you teaching our kids to drink responsibly? I go, no, I'm not. My message is you have to make your own choices, but um, I'm going to give you the best information I can to make those choices. Nearly, you know, nearly everything I say, particularly my year 10 talk, is screaming out. It's not a good idea for you to drink. These are all the reasons why. Now, those kids who don't drink pick up on that quickly. It reinforces their beliefs at the time that drinking is not for them and they feel good about it. Is it going to impact upon those kids who are already drinking? Highly unlikely. Am I going to actually change their behaviour as a result of that? Most probably not, because they've they've had the perceived benefits out of drinking. But there's this big chunk in the middle who are kind of, oh, will I, won't I? I've got a pretty good chance of you know affecting them and at the very least delaying it, but. You know, on top of that, it's about how to keep as safe as possible, how to look after each other. So hopefully that's what I, 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 I tried to achieve in the podcast that I did for kids. Yeah,
0: oh, you did. Yeah, it's very good. And I'll put links to all of your website and podcast in the show notes. And Paul, what do you think is the biggest risk, risk? the biggest risk apart from catching COVID to our (laughs) teens today? I mean, um, I I wrote these questions, I think, before my son did catch COVID (laughs) by being at schoolies. Yes, it's quite interesting. Catching COVID just seems to be an accepted thing these days. But apart from that, what do you think is the biggest risk that faces our teens today? What, What really concerns you the most out of all the things you talk about?
1: Well, I really don't talk about this one that much because it's not part of what I do um, with kids. But I think, well, I think um, it's starting to be. And, and that's the whole thing about social media and particularly in relation to bullying. I think um, I've been very fortunate in my media life and you know I've been working with the Australian media now for, oh, goodness me, well over 25 years. Um, and certainly when I was a regular, I had my regular spot on Triple J through the 90s. And in the early 2000s um you know i was on every week had my own show and all that kind of stuff and i never experienced really i had a couple of you know issues i said something and people didn't like it but it was never i never was hit with a wave of nastiness yeah but oh my goodness me (laughs) in the last uh, year or two and i do very little media but i've done a bit particularly on vaping the trolling that i got from all around the world I was accused of being a Nazi. I was accused of killing more people than the Holocaust. And it's mm. relentless. It's yeah. just, it was just this barrage of nastiness from people all around the world. Uh, I'm an adult and hopefully I'm big enough and ugly enough to kind of be able to um, cope with that. How young people cope with social media and the you know, you can't put a, just a photo of yourself online. You have to edit it. You know, uh, put a put a um, a filter on it. Everything you do is going to be judged. I think the other thing apart from bullying around with social media is, is you know, the um, access to so many things that we're, were around. You know, all these things that we that parents should be concerned about wh- have always been there. Whether it be alcohol, the drugs, pornography. Um, gambling um, all that stuff they were they've always been there but the access to them now is just like mind numbing
0: yeah comes at them doesn't it you know it everything it's interesting you mentioned gambling because i've even seen or heard of some of my son's friends
1: well they did a they did a study where and it, this was at a school where the devices were I, th- I think, rented from the school. I think that's how they did it. It was a kind of a bizarre system. But what they would do is they collect the devices regularly and they go through them and see the apps and everything and do a, you know, kind of a, an audit of information. And what they found was that something like 40% of the year nines had a gambling app on their a, a device. I've been involved with a couple of um, schools, um, boarding schools that have had, Huge issues with gambling, with particularly international students. One school, a student lost ten thousand dollars in one weekend. If parents who are listening to this just want to do one thing as a result, if you check your child's device even reasonably regularly, just go and have a look and look at the apps and see if you can find a, a, a betting app. I bet you can.
0: Wow, there's the challenge. I'm going to do that.
1: It tends to be sports bet or oh, the ones that are the ones that are on, you know, the news. Those little awful ads. That everyone, I think, almost <laughs> everyone hates. But it's usually those and kids are, are betting.
0: There you go, guys. Let's have a look. Talk about something that's addictive and not what we were really thinking we were going to talk about, but it's amazing what comes up when we open the can of worms. If
1: you also think about, it, about your community, kids who uh, you tend to focus this thing of like the push, push, button, push, button, um, roulette games, those kind
0: of generalisation, but it's true. They do like gaming um, generally more. Wow. Okay. Right. Next question. What about vaping? Or as I have been told, they're called STIGs. Please explain what it is and why teens partake in this. Is it addictive? What are the risks? How can we help our teens to avoid it? Or is it just everywhere, as my own son tells me?
1: (laughs) Well, I think... Um, I'll just say one thing about the, um, as your son tells you, it's everywhere. My favorite thing to say when a kid says to me, are they everywhere, is to challenge it. And you need to challenge it by saying just one simple sentence. And that is, well, they're not here, are they? And just point to the ground below you and then watch their head spin because when you actually challenge a child and you go, please don't use generalisations like that, sweeping kind of statements, you need to challenge them because they also need to kind of rethink what they've just said. Vaping is certainly a significant issue right across the country. Uh, Both schools and parents have really struggled with them over the past, uh, with the whole kind of issue over the past couple of years. But the notion of them being everywhere and everyone doing it Every bit of data we say, we have shows that the vast majority of young people have never vaped and won't and won't vape. That said, as I said, it has become a significant issue mainly because with schools well first of all I'll explain what vaping is. vaping has not been around for very long. The first e-cigarette electronic cigarette and that's what we're talking about when we talk about vaping have been, was invented in 2003. So they've only been around for 18 years, really. So in terms of long-term impact, we really don't know very much about them. Essentially, it's an alternate nicotine delivery system. That's why they were originally developed. And the most dangerous aspect of smoking is you burn the cigarette. You burn the cigarette, you create smoke. You inhale that smoke. That smoke contains uh, tar and a whole pile of other toxins and carcinogens. You inhale it, it sits in your lungs, it causes cancer. It's really simple. Smoking causes cancer. So what this Chinese inventor did who created the first e-cigarette was he took the smoke out of a cigarette. So instead of burning something, you vaporise it. You heat a liquid to a very high temperature, about 350 degrees Celsius. So very high, very, very quickly. So you don't inhale smoke. You inhale a vapour. Why they became uh, such a problem for schools were that You know, we haven't seen cigarette smoking at schools really since I taught in my early years of high school, really my early years of teaching. So way back in the early 80s, kids were bringing cigarettes to school. As a primary school teacher, we used to have to go around the toilet blocks to find kids behind toilets. But we haven't seen that for a long time. What vaping did was it brought an alcohol and other drug issue onto school grounds. Schools really had no idea how to deal with it. Because it's very hard to detect, these kids were going into um, bathrooms, toilets, and then vaping. The you get a plume of vapor or aerosol. It's not really a vapor, a plume of aerosol, but then it disappears. So there's really no evidence of it. So kids were bringing and even using them in classrooms. Um, There's a whole pile of. TikTok um, challenges that you can do of vaping behind a principal, vaping behind a teacher, all those things.
0: Heard about that. Yeah. yeah. And so what's
1: happened is that it a lot of parents were getting the phone call to say, look, your child's been suspended. Um, and sadly, we have had growing numbers of parents who've also said, my child is addicted.
0: Why do they get addicted? What is it that you? Th- that they're getting out of it? Because I've heard about these spinning things that happen, the head spin things.
1: Well, that's nicotine. Essentially, that's what it is. You can, there's vape, uh, Vaping can be different things. You can be just vaping a flavour. So you could just be vaping strawberry or raspberry or whatever, or you could be vaping a flavour plus nicotine, and that's what the vast majority of the disposable devices that, that parents may have seen is brightly coloured, um, very small little devices, uh, most of those would contain nicotine and that gives you the head spin like you, a cigarette would. You get that nicotine hit, but you're not smoking it so you don't get all of the tar and everything else with it. So it's seen as being less harmful than a cigarette. You can also vape other other, other substances and certainly cannabis is the most preferred. You can now, if you go on the dark web, you can certainly vape things like ecstasy, cocaine, a range of other uh, different substances too. I've never gone to a school where that has happened and that's really important to acknowledge, but certainly it's there. It's there,
0: yeah. But
1: nicotine is a big one. And of course, nicotine um, is an addictive uh, drug and although there's currently great debate about, the, about nicotine and adolescents, we have for a very long time said that adolescents are far more at risk of nicotine dependence because of the developing brain. That's only been proven in animal research, but certainly um, we've, we've been cautious when it comes to nicotine with young people. But certainly in my experience, the number of parents and young people who've contacted me and said, look, I need help. My child wants to quit but can't. Um, They're totally nicotine dependent. Certainly some young people, very, very distressed about the fact that they want to stop and they can't.
0: And if we put a little ADHD lens over this or mental illness lens over this, you shared some data with me. um, And I know it wasn't specifically about ADHD, but there was groups that were classified as mental health and groups that were non-mental health. The females in particular, these teenage groups, the tobacco, which I assume, is that vaping? Does that include vaping? Anyway, that group for female teenagers in the mental health group, which we are assuming is uh, there's a huge component there of um, young women with ADHD, may not even know they are ADHD. Anyway, there was a skew towards tobacco. Would you say that the kids with ADHD, in your experience, or even if it's anecdotal understanding, uh, is there something in particular about that nicotine that's he- helping their brain in some way or that they like?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, there is evidence and it's really pouring out of the US at the moment where they're trying to, I suppose, legitimise um, vaping more. And we're starting to see that here as well, where we have much tighter restrictions on vaping than anywhere else in the world. But, um, you know, there is evidence that nicotine is, I don't quite know what the word to use is, helpful or eases or whatever. But certainly those people with ADHD find it has that that sort of like the effect they're looking for.
0: Whatever um, it is, it's what they want. That's and right. It makes and them it, feel good.
1: And we saw the same with cigarette. You know, we, we're now seeing it in vaping. But we certainly saw, if you look at anybody with any mental health condition, it's, the the rates of smoking amongst that population are so much higher. And that's because they're most probably self-medicating with nicotine. And I mean, you've got to be very careful, as we talked about before, with this message, because we don't want young people to go, well, look, I have ADHD, I need to self-medicate with vaping. You know, you don't want to get that kind of message. And that's the, the danger here. Now that said, there there are some people in the pro vaping community who go, well, if it's helping their condition and it's not as risky as smoking, why aren't we promoting it? And I think that's a really dicey one. And
0: I do too, because there are um, very appropriate medications available and all sorts of other um, supportive treatments that don't involve a drug or whatever we want to call it where we don't actually fully understand what is even inside every particular vape as you said they've got this vapor and there's all sorts of other things in there that we may not fully understand. I think I'd rather go down the path of un- of taking a medication with, that has been trialed and is deliberately going to treat that condition.
1: Yeah, I think I think one of the challenges of course is that young people, you know, by their very nature of adolescence are more likely to be risk takers. And so the, you know, if you have an option of a medication that your parents provide you and you have to take at this time of the day every day and all that kind of stuff or someone offers you a really brightly coloured thing that you shouldn't really be doing, and it's a little bit of fun with your friends. It's not a surprise where which line they're going to go down.
0: <laughs> it's very naive to think otherwise. Yeah,
1: and I think it's you know my experience with particularly kids with ADHD over the years who've contacted me about medications and. We did a, a study a few years ago, and I think I sort of mentioned this to you when we first um, t- uh, spoke, uh, looking at the on-selling of ADHD medication to, um, to to young people. And although that's offered, that's uh, you know, there's lots and lots of discussion that that happens a lot. We did a study for New South Wales Education Department. Of, I don't know how many years ago now, and it was meant to be a, I think, a six-month study. And we ended up going for eighteen months because we just couldn't find anybody who was actually on selling their medication. Um, oh, no, good. <laughs> we, just couldn't, we couldn't find people, and we kept being told it was happening. And these people could come forward. It was there was no repercussions for it. It was completely anonymous, everything, and we just didn't find them. So it's something that's talked about around medications and um, you know on selling and stuff. What you do certainly see is is that young people who are on medication don't necessarily like the medication and they certainly don't like the idea of a routine of having to having to do something and that they are different to their friends they don't like that.
0: Well I'm glad we're talking about it even if we don't have all the answers at least it's bringing people's thoughts to the table you know it's making people think about it and have these discussions with their kids. I think it's a big
1: one around vaping nicotine, though, that is going to become a bigger and bigger and bigger discussion point for those parents of uh, particularly kids with ADHD. You're going to see, I think, it might be quite subtle at the beginning, the messaging that's coming out. But all I would say to parents is just be sort of careful about how you kind of take that information. Yeah, I think you're going to see a lot more about the usefulness and in inverted commas of nicotine in easing the symptoms yeah i think you're going to see a lot more about that and if you're talking to your, ke- your your child and they and they are vaping and you say why are you vaping i think to answer those questions what kind of what are you getting from it are you getting a buzz uh, or are you getting something else from this does it is it making you feel better or whatever? And so it's, it's a dicey one. But as I said, I, I think forewarned, forearmed, I think is really.
0: Yeah, forewarned, forearmed, I think is right. <laughs> that, <laughs> no, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. This is so, so important to us. And I, I hear my own kids echoed in everything you're saying. So let's move on. We're going to talk now, and you've already alluded to it, weed, cannabis, marijuana. It's a well-known and widely used drug. Do you know why this is? Please explain how this works and what it feels like. Well, what are they telling you it feels like? And what are their reasons given for using weed?
1: Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, well, cannabis, as you said, marijuana, grass, weed, pot, ganja, mole, hitch, shiny, Bruce, oh, spinach, spinach. You've got
0: way more words than me. <laughs>
1: Oh, when, I, when I actually kind of reel that off in front of a group of kids, they're kind of like, wow, they get so, they think that's pretty impressive. It's been used by about a third of the population. Um, so it is the most popular illicit drug in Australia and around the world. Um, it is illegal in pretty well every country across the world there are only three countries that have legalized it I think a lot of people think there's a lot more only three and those countries are um, Uruguay was the first Canada was the second in 2017 and then late last year Luxembourg became the first European country to uh, legalize it it's been decriminalized in a lot of places that basically means if you get caught with it you don't get a criminal record you get a fine like a speeding fine there are A number of states in America that have legalised it as well. And in Australia, we have the ACT, which has kind of tweaked the law a bit. It's not legal, but they've tweaked it. Which basically means if you you use a certain amount in your own home, you can't sell it, you can't give it to anyone else, you can't take it anywhere, those kind of things. If you grow it yourself and use it in your own home, um, that's kind of legal, but that's it. But pretty well everywhere else, it's an illegal drug. Look, it's been around for so long. And I suppose what we've seen really in recent years, there was a time back in the 90s when use plummeted to the lowest level ever. And that was a time where it was really getting a reputation as being a bit of a kind of a, a dirty drug. You know, you were a bit of a loser if you if you smoke weed. It was seen as, you know, pretty uncool. That's changed, I think, quite dramatically. There's a drug now that community attitudes have changed so much. And that's got an awful lot to do with the medicinal use of cannabis. We know that cannabis um, is useful in treating um, a number of different conditions. And that's why many countries, including Australia, have now medicinal cannabis available. Certainly in Australia, it, 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 it is available in that way. For the teens who use this drug, this is the drug that I've most probably had more contact with the ADHD community than any other and usually because parents contact me their child had been diagnosed and then medication was given they didn't like the medication they didn't like how usually the word that people describe is flattened they they feel flattened by the medication Mm -hmm. Um, and they found they they believed that they were getting a better a better response from cannabis. So, what kids were doing? They, they were on selling their their medication and then purchasing cannabis. As much as many young people believed, they believed that it was making them feel better. They were responding better, and I suppose living a better life, or whatever you want to say. Their parents and everyone else around them was going, no, that's not our. <laughs> we're seeing something completely different in response to this. Cannabis is not helping you. Cannabis is compounding the issue. Um, oh, okay. But quite often, young, in, I'd have to say, in almost every case that I've been involved with, the kids, yeah, did not huh. did not see it that way.
0: I find it so interesting because the medications that are used to treat ADHD are stimulant medications. Generally, they're the most effective treatments medications and yet weed works differently doesn't it it's it's a what do do we call it a suppressant well it's kind of
1: it's it actually doesn't fit into any classification it's kind of a a bit of a depressant a bit of a hallucinogen it's actually got its own classification which is a cannabinoid yeah it slows you down like you know um and so it's almost yeah i think when you're stoned what, what when when um Young people who have ADHD are stoned. They feel more in control, I think, but I don't necessarily think that is uh, that actually ends up being what's happening in their day-to-day life. Certainly. I got involved with a little bit of a study a number of years ago, well, a number of years ago, God, oh, well, over a decade ago, um, with Westmead Hospital looking at this where they were, because I think they're still the key place that deals with, particularly the diagnose, diagnosing of uh, young people. Yeah, they were, they, they were very interested in this area because, yeah, cannabis, they were just getting repeatedly the stories from young people that they were preferring to use cannabis over their medication. And does it just... You know, is it just the stoned effect, the sedating that they are that they appreciate? I have no idea. Certainly, you know, calming kind of not blocking out the world because that's not what it does. But uh, it does. It certainly does seem to appeal to uh, this group of young people.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The other thing that crosses my mind is the um, medicinal cannabis, the CBD oil. I'm no, you know, I'm no expert in any of this, but I know that it is often used for anxiety
1: yes yeah look when we talk about medicinal cannabis we're not talking about the plant we're talking about um a particular cannab- cannabinoid now the, the the cannabinoid that gets stoned is thc so that's how we typically measure how we measure the potency of cannabis we uh, so um the higher thc levels the more kind of stoned effect you get now, on the other hand, there's a whole pile of up, there's more than 500 cannabinoids in a cannabis plant. But the one that is used mm-hmm. medicinally is CBD, cannabinole. And mm-hmm. so, what that does, so that has the, uh, and usually it's CBD oil, either in a capsule or in a, in a dropper. And yeah. there are young people, there are, um, and people can be prescribed CBD oil for anxiety. They're not going to get stoned on it. But they have the CBD effect now. So, in some ways, for uh, people who have mental health conditions, that can be terrific. The trouble is with young people is that they just don't they just don't want that aspect of it. They also want the high that's associated with it as well. So, currently you you can certainly get see um, you can get onto the. Can be prescribed cannabis. It's expensive. It's incredibly expensive. So what many people do is they revert back to the black market. And the black market, the products may have higher levels of THC in them as well, whereas most of the the ones that you would get through chemists registered products that have they must have a um, the lower certain level of THC, a tiny amount. But it's the THC that gives the stoned effect. That leads to possibly the next thing that we should talk about with cannabis, which is the whole thing about psychosis. Because I think when we're talking about cannabis, the greatest problem that anyone is going to experience with cannabis, apart from the legal ramifications of being caught with it, would be uh, around psychosis, unlocking a pre-existing mental health condition. Cannabis does not cause a mental health condition. It unlocks it in those people with a predisposition so my message to kids is that if you have a um, a member of your family on your mum's or dad's side a relative who has a condition like schizophrenia or bipolar this is a drug you don't use because it might not happen the first time or the third or the 25th time but the more you use cannabis the more likely it will unlock it doesn't cause it it opens it up and what is so incredibly sad with what i do and what i've done over the years is when you meet someone in year 10, year 10 particularly, a year 10 boy who is introduced to you or they come up to you after the talk. And I had one boy who years ago, I tell the story at schools and it's heartbreaking. He walked up and I'd just spoken about cannabis unlocking a mental health problem. And he walked up and he said, you know how you said it could unlock? He said, I've been diagnosed with bipolar. He said, I'm on really you know, he hated his medication. He, he explained very clearly why he hated it. it he was a sportsman. Um, prior to his diagnosis, he had put on lots of weight. He, it was awful, terrible. And his heart was breaking. He looked at me and he said, can I lock it up again? And I had to look at this boy, <laughs> 16 he was, it was a year 11 boy. And I said, I'd say, no, you can't. Once you've opened it up, of course, you can live a really full life because, you you know, we have medications now, et cetera, et cetera. But for this young man, it's devastating.
0: It's a terrible story. Yeah, well, the, these are things that affect our community. You know, generally speaking, again, we do have more, um we are touched more by other mental health conditions associated with people with neurodivergence, you know, often do have a link to other things like bipolar and, things like that so and it's
1: so important that when we talk about cannabis if you're going to ever have a conversation with your child that we don't just we, that we don't make sweeping statements like cannabis causes this or cannabis does this you know, the, what you've got to remember a third of the population have tried this drug now if cannabis caused mental health problems, we'd have a third of the population who all have cannabis related mental health problems for the vast majority of people it doesn't cause a problem and we need to acknowledge that But we also need to make sure that kids are making informed choices and that they do know that there is a risk because, but it's about how you convey that risk in a way that they're likely to accept. It has to be a credible message. And that's one of the great challenges of what I do for a living is trying to come up with messages that are credible, accurate and meaningful. Because it is tough.
0: Yeah, I bet it is. And they're not silly either, young people. They sniff things out. I think
1: about how once again it's about access. We talked about access to all these bad things. Access to information. These kids can type in into a Google search, blum blum blum, and find and usually find research. Usually find some website that will completely contradict what you as a parent says. <laughs> because there's always you know there's
0: conflicting views. Unbelievable. Yes, we know. Yes, far out. (laughs) Okay, i will keep going. Um, I've got one more um, drug to ask you about and then I'm going to stop and ask you some more stuff. Okay, my next question is cocaine is thought to be a well-known drug of choice for ADHDers. That may be a myth but I'm assuming that is because it's a stimulant. Do we know if that is why ADHDers prefer it? Please tell me what you know about cocaine use in Australia.
1: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting one because in my experience, cocaine, particularly amongst school-based young people, young um, people, cocaine's not a drug of choice, mainly because of the cost. It's a very expensive drug. For a very long time, it it was the most expensive drug at $200 a gram. It then went steadily up as quality got better and better in this country. Um, for a while, a couple of years ago, it's about three hundred and fifty dollars a gram. It's now kind of gone down a bit again, but the quality uh, seems to have gone down as well. So this is a drug that usually you would not see school-based young people use because of the price. If they did use it, it tended to be for a special occasion, like a you know a high sc- a formal or a you know a big party where they pull their money and buy a gram. But it doesn't take very much to actually go through a gram very quickly with four or five people who may be put $60 in each. So kids have to have a reasonable disposable income to kind of access this drug. When it comes to ADHD, it's look, the only link that I've ever really seen with cocaine and ADHD is the research that was out a long time ago that Louise, you and I spoke about um, in our first discussion, uh, which kind of said that, you know, if you if you use certain medications, early um, ADHD medications, it was training the brain for stimulant use in the future, that they were going to inevitably become an amphetamine or cocaine user. Um, That has since been disproved, at least to my knowledge. Um, And I've had quite a bit of research that said that that's that's highly unlikely to be the case. But what my experience with ADHD people and cocaine is around those people who I've known over the years friends or acquaintances who've said to me, this drug just doesn't work for me. Like everyone else is, you know, as high as a kite and, you know, I've just had exactly the same as them and I have no effect at all apart from that I feel really totally normal. That's likely to be the effect Effect of, if, um, and as I've said, I had um, a, a, very, a person I knew very well who kept saying this about cocaine and I said, look, you're spending a lot of money just to find out that it's not working. Have you ever been tested in being tested for ADHD? And I said, well, why? And I said, well, if you're using a stimulant and it's actually making you feel normal, it's kind of like flattening you out. It's highly likely that that could be you've got different brain chemistry. And he went and got tested, and he was diagnosed with adult ADHD. So I think if people are using those who use stimulants, usually. In my experience, they tend to say these are not good drugs for me to use because it's often a waste of money. You know, everyone else is like having party time and I'm sitting there wanting to actually get down and do some homework, you know, I mean. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's sort of the answer I thought you were going to give me, but originally, but it's and it makes total sense it absolutely is completely logical and it is how I understand these medications work. But um, I, I still thought that, they, that you know, young people who weren't taking ADHD medication drifted towards cocaine, but um, I can see why it's...
1: That could be absolutely true, that they, are, they drift towards it because they don't... They're possibly expecting a high, don't get the high, but actually quite like the normal feeling, maybe that could be the case. Um I, as I said I, I don't really know enough about it, but and I don't think anyone's really looked at research in that area, not that I not that I've ever seen. In this country, we certainly are in the midst of a cocaine. if, if there's you know that's the one illicit drug that is constantly is constantly rising. and I mean, I live in Sydney, and um if you I live in Surrey Hills and you know right in the centre of Sydney, and to be quite honest, cocaine, I, I hate using the word, is everywhere, but absolutely at the moment it's a drug that is very easy to get, incredibly easy to access. We have a dial-a-dealer service here now, which really you only ever saw in places like New York and uh, London, but now you can actually call a number and someone will home deliver it to you. That just shows you how how much there is around. Um, you still have to know somebody, of course. but
0: Yeah, and I guess those are the sorts of things... The, um, the, the sorts of messages I was receiving as a person sort of not, not in that world, which is interesting to see the messages that get through to people like me <laughs> because I'm a, a case in itself.
1: Oh, I have so many parents who've contacted me over the last couple of years who've said, look, up, we went to a dinner party and my husband or wife, you know, my partner and I are very, very straight-laced, but all of a sudden people were going off in pairs to the toilet at this dinner party and they said, we had no idea, but quite a few of our friends are cocaine users. And it's become very socially acceptable. I have people I know and I've known for years who have said to me, oh, oh Paul, cocaine, cocaine isn't really even a drug. I kind of go, what? <laughs> I think once again, it's when you kind of, but I think it, that's kind of trying to justify your own, um, your own drug use maybe there.
0: And Paul, there's behaviours that these kids get involved with. That uh, you know a lot about and come across your uh, your your desk, I guess. You've mentioned sleepovers, young drivers, and schoolies before. What do we know about these? Tell us a little bit about what goes on and what we should be looking out for as parents and teachers.
1: Well, I think particularly for the for, for your community, I mean, these basically fit into three time periods in their life that are. Um, often uh, you know all parents face issues with them but i suppose they're magnified and um, multiplied for uh, for your community i think sleepovers they are uh, they've been significantly interrupted by of course covid and lockdowns and everything else and i think it's going to be very, very interesting this is going to be fascinating for me watching as we kind of come out of omicron and all that kind of stuff how we move into that whole area of young people and socialising? Are there going to be significant changes in how parents deal with it? I think a a lot of parents are just going to go, you know what, I'm so tired. My kids have had it tough for, you know, so long and kind of let their guard down and let their kids do things that most probably they wouldn't have done, you know, Mm -hmm. two years ago if their kids had been the same age. You know, I think COVID has worn parents down a bit. But, you know, with, with your community, there's a whole pile of uh, other issues when, when they 're going into that first time of socializing with other young people with parents who you might not know particularly well you don 't know their values you don 't know um, you know a, a whole pile of things so it's a um, it 's a tough one um, particularly as they're starting to move into um, you know we 're going to talk about year nines but year nine is a period of of moving into middle adolescence where they 're all of a sudden changing from being into same sex clicks into mixed sex clicks. All of a sudden they start hanging out with others. Um, You start having dating happening and all of a sudden, you know, the Saturday night hanging out with your friends is incredibly important. It's a time where parents need to parent and that is challenging for any parent. But of course, if you have a a child with uh, particular needs, um, it's magnified, it's much greater. if we go on to young drivers, I think when we had our original discussion, this one really kind of blew your mind when I suggested talked about this one. But it's something that I cannot believe that parents don't talk about. Medications and driving. I've just recorded the next 10 podcasts that I've, um, I've got for kids. And I've got one on RBT for young people. And I've got one on mobile drug testing or, or roadside drug testing. And the roadside drug testing I just don't think parents realise that um, if you have a P-plater or an L-plater, the chances of them being pulled over and being breathalysed is far greater than for you, number one. And secondly, if they are chosen to do a roadside drug test, and that's how a roadside drug test you are chosen, they look at you and they choose you, that little test, if a a police officer has pulled over your child because their driving looks affected in any way, this is really important to know the law here, if they believe that their driving has been affected, they can do the first test, which is a saliva test. They don't have to do that one if they don't want to. And then they can take them, their second test, which is much more sophisticated, um, can detect a range of drugs, particularly cannabis for some time. But this is the killer. If they both come out as negative and the police still believe your driving is affected in some way, they can actually take them and get a laboratory test. And if they're on medication and their driving is impaired, they can be charged with drug driving. Prescribed medication, you can get a drug driving charge.
0: Drug driving, yeah. Drug driving. Driving.
1: Yeah. Um, And so I often get asked when I talk about, because Roadside Drug Test, a little blue test, detects cannabis, ecstasy, MDMA, and amphetamine. In New South Wales, also cocaine. It looks like Queensland and Victoria are about to introduce cocaine as well. But when I say amphetamine, you'll get always at least one ADHD kid who will come up and say, what about my ADHD medication? Now, if they're on Ritalin, Ritalin, of course, is not an amphetamine, but dexamphetamine is. Now, what police will tell, and certainly um, I work with Transport New South Wales on a resource for schools, and I sent questions off and I said, can the test detect dexamphetamine? And they say, no, it can't. But that said, I've, at least had three or four young people all young men who have actually tested positive positive. Uh, and they ha- they assure me they did not use drugs they were tested positive for amphetamine. Now when it went to the second test they they passed but still that was terribly terribly confronting for these young people they were frightened. So what I always say and my suggestion to any of you who are listening to this who have a young um, a young driver in your midst, to say to them, get um, um, an empty packet of their medication with their name on it and keep it in the glove box. And so if they get pulled over and they are asked, they are chosen for a roadside drug test, they will then say politely and respectfully, and that's really important to teach your child to be polite, respectful to police, and say, I am on ADHD medication. Now, without a doubt, the police will say, it doesn't check for that, doesn't test for that, doesn't get it, doesn't do that. But as I always say to young people, you simply saying that to a police officer means that number one, you've been polite, you've been respectful. Number two, you kind of understand the process a little bit and you've actually, you're prepared. It's a kind of a, you know, if something does happen and you do get a positive test, they're most probably going to be, uh, the police are most probably going to be a heck of a lot more, I suppose, Uh, the process won't be as
0: as, suspicious or, or whatever yeah I'm and arduous, was, you
1: know yeah. so i just don't think people realize that you can actually get done for drug driving for prescription medication now adhd medication should not affect your driving in any way in fact it should kind of make you a better driver yes <laughs> people don't like say that because of course you know then you're talking about cocaine and amphetamine as well Actually, the reality, <laughs> you are a better driver when you're on a stimulant to some extent at low levels you, you have greater focus you know, truck drivers who've been, you know, snorting four kilos of it on the Hume Highway—not necessarily. Yeah, no, but uh, I think that around young drivers is really important, and it kind of relates to the schoolies issue as well. If you're taking medication with you to a schoolies event, when you think that certain medications are um, are seen as um, desirable for for certain young people to take, you know, um, a packet of. Xamphetamine or a, a, you know a little bottle of um, Ritalin with you and the police you know pull you over and check you and find out that you have that on you you know that's potentially problematic so once again I always say to to young people going to school is if you have medication on you only take enough for for what you need never have it in your pocket never take it in your pocket because if you are if a drug dog comes up and you are pulled over and they find it on you you don't have your prescription on you there's potentially issues there so I don't think parents often think about that stuff and um, I,
0: I know they don't well I we certainly especially the drug the uh, driving thing as you mentioned uh, we had not Thought of ourselves. Um, But I did talk to my son before he went to schoolies after I talked to you. (laughs) So that was very helpful. Thank you very much. And I hope other people find that advice very helpful.
1: For any parent who wants to know more about roadside drug testing, there is a wonderful video on YouTube. It's just, um, it's all you have to type in is mobile drug testing New South Wales into a YouTube search. It's a 14 minute video that actually goes through in detail and it's entertaining exactly how mobile drug testing works. It doesn't, it doesn't particularly particularly talk about medications um, in there, but it shows you how the process works. To just sit through that with your child and to say, did you know that this is how it operates? That if you smoke cannabis, you can be this long. It's a, it's a, it's a useful thing to see the process.
0: And they are interested. I know that when my son got his peas, he was very interested and did notice that he was being pulled over a lot in the early days when he was on his L's he was breathalyzed with my husband there and um yeah he was pulled over a lot on his red peas in particular you know never never a problem but it's obvious that that's what's happening and it's good I think it's good totally
1: I I mean it's a very positive thing we want our kids to be as safe as possible we know they're at greater risk because of their their stage of development No one should really drive a vehicle, the the research um, shows, until they're about 25. No one should. I
0: know, I know. It's it's quite scary, yes. (laughs) Anyway, I've only got one more to go there. You mentioned Year 9. Is there anything more that you would just sort of like to briefly mention perhaps about that stage? It's a very important stage and I just attended recently your webinar which specifically focused on Year 9 and had my eyes further opened. Is there anything else that you would like to mention? Well, I just
1: think it's that stressing of moving into the next stage of adolescence. You know, they're just coming out of early adolescence, which is a time where they're starting to establish their own identity and all that sort of thing. But it's, I think it's the socialising, the importance of socialising in starting in Year 9. If you have a child who's just beginning Year 9 this year, this is a year where you get all of that super pressure for, for them to attend to attend events. They don't want you to know anything about them at all. If you say, well, I'm going to call the parents and all that kind of stuff, they'll go, you'll ruin my life. And, you know, you're the only one and all that stuff. But it is incredibly important that you persist. And as I've said, because of COVID, I think a lot of parents are going to let their guard down a bit. And I totally get that. I totally understand. I think, you know, parents, kids have had it hard. Parents have had it tough over the last couple of years. But if you just put a little bit of effort at the beginning of year nine, even if, you, if it, they wear you down halfway through, but you've given the first few months where you turn around and you say, you know what, the deal is you can go if I have this, this and this. If I if I know where you're going, I've spoken to the parents, I I take you, I pick you up. If you've got that stuff and you do it for even the first six months, You possibly kept your kid just a little bit safer.
0: Yeah, and and trying. I guess I'm thinking about my friends of the my year nine sons' parents, those who are my friends. I'm thinking, you know, I will be talking to them more openly and having a good relationship, open relationship with them, and make sure we're all on the same page as much as possible. The best way to
1: keep your kids safe is to uh, is to create a parent network. You know, when I do a school, uh, parent night at a talk, I just say to parents, speak to each other for heaven's sake. It doesn't take much. You don't have to be best friends, but, you know, talk. Talk to one another. And, you know, um, if you can find one parent who has the same values as you in this area, araldite them to your hip. Because they'll be very useful in the future. um... i'll just make
0: all my friends listen to this podcast but you know other people will have to think about contacting their mates but it's very good very great advice and uh, you know having gone through it once already it is so it really does help to um, keep things on track and now just to talk about other well in i guess it's medication interactions neurodivergent youth often take many different types of medication there's antidepressants antipsychotics and stimulants that are wonderful medicines and help our youth so much. All medications can interact with others. What sort of things should parents and teens be aware of when it comes to the questions around drug interactions? Does this come up much, Paul?
1: <laughs> I wish it did. I find this one of the most frustrating, frustrating aspects of what I do. If you look at the numbers of young people who are now on prescription medication, and I have not judging that in any way, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be happening or anything. If, if we can make our kids' lives easier by medicating them in whatever way, that's great. But we have such high numbers, such high numbers. And if you have a year 10, who, so a 15-year-old, who's going out on a Saturday night and they're going to parties... If you have not had a conversation with them about the impact of drinking alcohol on the medication they're on then there's a huge chunk of um, important information that they're missing out on that they really should have i get asked constantly by young people i would say if it doesn't happen at least once a fortnight i'd be surprised young people who go, I'm on this medication, and I'm starting to drink, or sometimes it's not that they've even started yet, but they're thinking about what's going to happen. What is the interaction? And I have to look at these kids and go, I have no idea. Um, I'm not a doctor. Drugs, whether the, I, I find the two real problems are epilepsy, and, and diabetes, and to a lesser extent, antidepressants. But those conditions. When a kid comes up to me and says, I've been, I'm i a diabetic, blah, 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 um, what, what's the impact of alcohol, Sh- what should I be doing? My first question is, have you spoken to your your doctor about this? Not your parents. I say, have you spoken to your doctor about this? Because to be quite honest, parents are not going to know the answers here. It's going to be. You can do all the reading you want, but, you know, you don't necessarily know the extent of, you know, um, your, your child's condition, you know, what has... What has the doctor, what's the doctor prescribed them and why? So I say, have you spoken to your doctor? Nine times out of 10, no. My next question is, when did you, when were you diagnosed? And quite often they were diagnosed at age of 12 or 13. So they were young, they were children, okay? And these kids are 15, 16, and they are now going to parties. Most, many of them are at least experimenting with alcohol. The trouble is that when they go for their, six-monthly or yearly appointment with their specialist, the parent, you know, the child is not going to stand in front of a specialist and say, oh, by the way, I'm going to parties all the time and I'm drinking, what should I be doing? So they don't ask the question. And because we live in the eight-minute Medicare consultation kind of world, does, does the doctor, number one, does the doctor have the opportunity to have that discussion? Number two, do they see this child that they've had since they were 12, who is now 15, 16, do they see them as a young adult? Nine times out of 10, no. And so as a result, that conversation never happens. And what we, you know, on most medication, it says quite clearly, do not use with alcohol. There's a reason for that. And certainly some of the best experiences I've had is where either I've mentioned this to a young person or to a parent and they've gone to the doctor. And what's happened is the doctor actually put the child on different medication because there is adult medication that you could use that does not have the same issues with alcohol as others this is so important and I've written blogs three blogs about this I've just done another one that I put up a couple of earlier in the week haven't kind of publicized it at all but I put up this put up the blog about this issue and it's my every single time it's my least read blog Mm, people just don't that. pick it up and when you look at the numbers and um I think the in terms of antidepressants we now have in 2019 it was it's close to 175,000 young people who are prescribed antidepressants so 0 to 19 175,000 that's just antidepressants
0: and we saw your the figures I'm not sure if I'll be able to share those if you, if you if that's possible, I'll talk to you about that. But Yeah,
1: you could share them. They're, they're figures that come from the TGA, so they're, they're not Oh, sick.
0: right. Okay. Well, there was a huge number there, particularly in the female segment, um, who had uh, depression, you, you know, and a, a lot of young women as their age progresses are um, being diagnosed with depression and anxiety disorders. Anxiety is just, it's, it's becoming a huge I- issue. And so people are taking those medications a lot.
1: And there has to be a conversation about them. I, I think the trouble is when you say it's been prescribed by a doctor, that drug magically becomes something like fairy floss that you should be skipping through the forest and, you know, having the deers and, um, you know, squirrels hopping around you. <laughs> you know, the reality is a lot Rainbows of Rainbows and
0: unicorns. Yeah, yes, um, absolutely. A yeah. lot of
1: medications, as much as they can change people's lives and be incredibly, you know, positive things, some of them are quite toxic, and certainly when you actually are messing around with other things. I mean, for antidepressants, for example, in the old days, the old antidepressants which don't really get prescribed anymore, but those, those ones, if you used and you took MDMA at the same time, I mean, the potential for serotonin syndrome and death was much higher. So yeah, I well,
0: remember that, that, yeah, and then we started yeah. getting
1: messages out to people about, you know, if you are on antidepressants, make sure you tell your doctor that you use MDMA. Uh, you know, you, you go out on a Saturday night, and you occasionally do take a pill or whatever, when you go to nightclubs, because if you don't tell them, and they give you the, you're prescribed a certain kind of antidepressant, that the combination is potentially lethal. It's the same with these kind of things we need to let our kids know but we've got to do it very carefully because if we try to say if you mix these you could potentially die are they going to drop their medication or are they going to drop the alcohol likely to drop the medication so it's got to be done very carefully and that's where doctors are most probably the best people to do it not a parent
0: and you know but we've still got this problem and this is what I was going to ask you I mean what advice do you have in that situation where you've got the doctor sitting there with the parent sitting there and the kid in the middle not wanting to to say anything in front of the parent what how could how do we get around that because this is a that that is really a I know that the um, legal age for teenagers to have to to remain confidential with the with the relationship with their doctor is quite young i think it's 15 or something yeah i think it is but, 15 yeah but still if the parents there's still an awkward thing i mean i guess there's not any really straight
1: i just think when they get to a certain age when and i reckon you know usually middle adolescence 14 15 16 you can say to that you can say to your child at that point you know what? You're getting to an age now where you might be, you might have questions about this that you don't necessarily want me to to know about. So why don't we do half of the consultation with me being there, and you do the second half? Always make it that you're at the first half, not this. Yeah, you go first, so that it's not that they don't think you're going to go in afterwards and find out what they said. Because to be quite honest, you know unless unless there's something very bizarre about your child. They're not going to all of a sudden divulge something, you know, incredibly terrible. But if they are going to parties, and maybe you could say, you know, you are going to parties now, maybe you could, you know, give them a little bit of a suggestion about what they could talk about. What 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 might be happening in the future that you might want to know about? You know, you might not drink you might not drink alcohol now, but you know, when you turn 18, are going to become a part of your life. Do you want to ask questions about that? Open the door a little bit, but I think you need to talk it through with your doctor beforehand so they're prepared for it. Because as I said, there'd be a lot of doctors who wouldn't have a clue what the interaction is, but they can find out. If you do have a doctor who you do have a good, uh, right, look, it's fantastic. I mean, that's the sad part, isn't it, about oh, family doctors now that there are so many people who just don't have that luxury.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. So another hurdle, but it's important to overcome that or at least deal with that situation. Okay, well, I think we're up to our final question, which is just to talk to you a bit more about your organisation, DATA. I've just abbreviated it here. It's a long acronym. Um, And you run webinars, provide talks at schools and community groups. And obviously I will share your website, your Facebook group, your podcast, everything, because I'm sure people will be interested in the show notes. But what else would you like to mention about data and where can we all find more information about the work that you do?
1: Data was something, if you ask anybody who knew me when I was younger, the idea of, you know, would I ever become a public speaker or anything? And when it comes to alcohol and other drugs, would I ever talk about that topic? It would be like, no, he'd be the last person to ever do that. I've been incredibly fortunate that I sort of fell into something that I absolutely love and I'm very passionate about. Trouble is I'm getting older, <laughs> you know, these <laughs> now, and um, it's, uh, it's a very tire. Tiring... I, I go to about 200 schools a year, speak to about 120,000 young people, so it's, it's pretty taxing. My kind of next stage of data is really how do I... You know, it's 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 a brand that has um, quite a good reputation, and how do I maintain that, and how do I continue to reach as many, particularly young people, as I possibly can, and and keep credible? Because you know, wheeling you know a sixty-something year old man in front of a 50, group of fifteen-year-olds, um, <laughs> kind of like, what was Grandpa got to say? <laughs> um, so it's about you know how do I? It's it's really the important part is do i go from here and that's why i did the podcasts um and they were incredibly successful i mean i hit the top five of itunes education podcasts with
0: i heard you say that the other day
1: blew my mind um so um there is a need for 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 this kind of stuff because if you try to find anything else about drug use and young people there's nothing i suppose it's about uh, if people want to know more you know, you're going to put my website, and my, um, my, all of that kind of stuff. You can find out. But I'm constantly trying to think where, where do I go from here? Webinars, which i I'd, I'd been asked to do before COVID, but had no idea how to do and had no interest in them because I hate the sound of my own voice and I hate watching videos of me. But you know, when you're reaching huge numbers of people, it's uh, it's a it's it's a real it's a it's a way it's a great way to go.
0: Yeah, it has opened that up. COVID has opened that sort of thing up um, and allowed people a broader scope.
1: My, my problem with young people is that I couldn't do what I do if I don't actually talk and listen to young people. You know, I know the basics about everything, but it's about listening to young people and finding out what's going on that really kind of makes what I do relevant, I suppose. And Covid's made that very very difficult, and it's very um, look. I'm kind of really <laughs> peeved with you know this term. I was due to be in Queensland all next week, and of course, um, number one, uh, the schools haven't even gone back yet. But secondly, just going to a school at the moment is such a, a drama. Because if I go to a school in Queensland or go to a school in Melbourne, I live in Sydney, if I go to a school, I have a rat test, a rat, I, I a test, and I test positive, I won't be able to go back to the school. I can't go back to the hotel because they won't have you. And I can't get onto a plane. So currently, I can't really move across the country. And so I've gone back to doing online things, which like is fine for a while. But I just think we have to get into a world where we have some kind of Back to kind of some norm normality in some way because it's it's challenging
0: that is ridiculous that is really ridiculous we're in this weird limbo land with this at the moment
1: but I understand I understand the testing procedures and everything else I completely get that but um it sets great challenges for you know how how to do what I do but other people are in exactly the same boat
0: Well, it's going to be a very interesting year ahead and I guess we've just got to hope that we overcome some of those challenges. But look, Paul, thank you so much for coming on Square Peg Round Hole. I absolutely know that listeners will be very, very interested, particularly to hear thinking through the lens of neurodivergence and thinking of our kids and what they're like and and you know, the sorts of things they do and how we know them so well it will really help um, help people to open up their world and understanding around these very important issues. So thank you once again.
1: Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Okay, I'll sign us off from the podcast now. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Mm-hmm. Acknowledgements. Thank you to Carla Cushel of Carla Cushel Creative for the podcast logo and the website. Editing by Matt Kushel. Images and episode quotes are the work of Jazzy C. Music is also by Jazzy C. Finally, a big thank you to my friends and family for encouraging me. As always, thank you to my partner in everything, Ash Cushel. And remember... Just be nice to one another.